0: thank you so much for the chance to come and to open the Scriptures and to uh, look together at a passage of the Bible. Well, I want to start by asking a question. And my question is, do you consider yourself to be a strategic person? Do you consider yourself to be a strategic person? It's, It's an interesting question, because Christians often ask ourselves, are we people who are good people? Faithful people? Godly people? And they're great things to ask, and we should be asking them of ourselves and of each other, and uh, they're very important. But the Bible does also talk a lot about us being strategic people, people who are strategic for the work of the Kingdom of God, both now and into the future... And so it's important for us to think, are we like that? Are we strategic people? It's really important for us, particularly in this city at this time, because we know that Adelaide and South Australia and the world are actually under-resourced for kingdom ministry. Under-resourced for kingdom ministry. There are thousands, millions of people who are not being reached with the Gospel. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of believers who believe in Jesus but are not being grown or deepened in their faith in significant ways. And as our population grows, we're seeing a sad trend which is the Christian commitment of our population is declining, which means the need is just getting greater all the time. The needs are great. And Jesus explicitly called for His people to act strategically in these last days when many people need to hear the message, people need to be deepened in the faith, and sadly too often the message is not being proclaimed and people are not being built up. I want to turn to a part of the Scriptures that talks about this, the end of Matthew's Gospel. So at Matthew 24... Jesus speaks there that one day He will return as Lord and Judge of all. Okay? One day Jesus is going to return as Lord and Judge of all. You might know that part of Matthew, Matthew 24. But then when you get to the, the crossover between Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, Jesus teaches what His people are to do while we wait for Him to return. Chapter 24, Jesus says He's returning one day. 24 and 25 says, here's what you need to do before that time. Uh, And there's several stories here that Jesus tells, and interestingly, they all build on each other. He tells a story and makes a point, then he tells another story and makes a point that builds on the first one, and tells another story and makes another point that builds on that. So he builds up a big picture of what we're to do while we wait for him to return. And I'd like to read to you the last of those three stories... Uh, and think about that in some detail. So, where I'm going to read from is Matthew 25, verses 14 through to 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through to 30. Now, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version. Your version might be a bit different, but they're all uh, pretty much the same. And so, uh, if there's slight word differences, uh, that won't affect the meaning of the text here. Uh, Let me read it to you. You can either read along or listen as you like. Jesus said, For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents? See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then, the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master... "'I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. "'So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. "'Here, you have what is yours.' "'But his master replied, "'You wicked and lazy slave. "'You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, that I gather where I did not scatter. "'Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, "'and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest.' So, take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Well, it's quite a strong story, isn't it? It's quite a strong story. But as we look at it, it makes a lot of sense. As I said, uh, this is the third of three stories that uh, Jesus tells to say what we should be doing while we wait for him to return. Uh, We find, uh, just quickly, in the end of chapter 24, 24, 36 to 51, we have a slave who's been acting inappropriately behind his master's back, and he gets caught out. And the lesson of that first story is, you don't know when the master's coming back so always be ready. Otherwise, you might be like that slave and get caught out. Always be ready is the message of the first story. And I think this is a message we hear quite a bit in lots of our churches, don't we? Jesus could come back tomorrow, so be ready. He could come back tonight, be ready. Some people go, hopefully he'll come back in the next 10 minutes, because then it would be over. (laughs) Jesus could come back really soon, so be ready. That's the first story. That's an important story and I trust that all of you here today are ready for the Lord Jesus to return. And if not, I encourage you to do whatever you need to do in terms of repenting and submitting your life to Jesus as Lord so that you are ready. But that's only the first part of the story. That's only the first story Jesus tells. Be ready. The second thing he says is that famous story at the start of Matthew 25 of the ten bridesmaids. You remember this story, you might know it, where these ten bridesmaids go out at night to wait for the uh, the groom to arrive for the wedding. Uh, And five of them have taken extra oil for their lamps, and five haven't. And the five who haven't, their oil runs out. And they have to go back to get some more, but it's when they're gone that the groom comes back. And so they miss out on being there to welcome the groom. And the lesson of that story is, it could be a long wait. So the first story is, you need to always be ready. Jesus could come back any minute. The second story is, but it might be a long wait. It might not be tomorrow or the next day. It might be in five years' time, or ten years' time, or so far, 2,000 years' time. Be ready for a long wait, is the second story. And then we get to the third story, which is the one I just read to you. And that tells us what we should do while we wait. This is what you should do while you wait. So the stories of this man going on a long journey, and he has these three slaves. Now, when we think slaves, we tend to think of the horrible slave trade uh, in the Americas, where you had black Africans who were enslaved forcibly and so on. It's not quite what slaves were like in New Testament times. In New Testament times, they're probably more like, Bond servants. Some people would uh, offer themselves into slavery as a way of being looked after by a household, even as they then uh, submit a lot of their rights to their owners. So they're kind of like bond servants, not quite like we think of slaves, but people who work for the master, uh, and in some cases it could be quite a good arrangement for them. But they certainly have responsibility, and they certainly have things that they need to do uh, as the master directs them. And the master's going on a journey, and he gives them talents. Now, a talent is a measure of weight used to measure precious metals. And uh, if we have silver talents, uh, which is probably what we're talking about here, what we need to realise is just how much money we're talking about, okay? We heard that one slave got five talents, one got two, one got one, but what does that mean? Well, it equates to, roughly, a talent... Roughly 16 years of the average wage. Put that in today's terms, a talent is worth about $1.2 million, something like that, ballpark. Uh, If it's gold we're talking about rather than silver, then a talent is worth something like $40 million. So one of the slaves, the first one, gets given five talents. So that's somewhere between six and $200 million. The second slave gets given two talents, so that's somewhere between 2.5 and 80 million dollars. And the last slave gets one talent, maybe 1 million, maybe 40 million dollars. The point is, this is big money. This is big money. This is not pocket change. This is the master going away and saying to his slaves, of my grand estate, I'm putting you in charge of vast things. And I'm giving you duties that you need to do. Because he doesn't just say, hang on to this, does he? What he does is he gives them the talents according to their ability. And it's clear from what follows that he expects his slaves, his bond servants, to be using these talents to do what? To grow. The charge of the slaves is, increase the master's assets. Increase the master's assets in his absence. That's what he's asking you to do increase the Master's assets. Well, when he comes back, what do we find? The first two bond servants have done exactly what they should have done, they have increased the Master's assets. In fact, uh, it turns out they've both doubled his assets. So the one who had five now has ten, and the one who had two now has four. They've taken what he gave for uh, them, they've gone out and traded and done whatever it is they do, and they've come back, uh, when he's come back, they've been able to say, look, we've doubled what you gave us which is uh, pretty impressive. The third only had one talent, so only 40 million odd, uh, and he did nothing with it. Now, notice this, he didn't squander it. He didn't go off and indulge himself with it. He he wasn't greedy, he wasn't selfish, he just didn't do anything with it. He just buried it, put it in a safe place, and the master comes back, he says, here it is. The master hasn't lost anything. Here it is. But the reckoning, when the master comes, doesn't quite see it so neutrally. The first two, clearly they've turned this prophet and what does the master say? Well, of course, he's delighted, he's delighted. Uh, And you get these famous, famous words from the master, well done, good and trustworthy slave. Some uh, translations of the Bible say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the reward is... You've been trustworthy in a few things, notice that language? You've been trustworthy in a few things, like a few hundred million. You've been trustworthy with those, that petty stuff. Now, enter into your Master's joy. Now, come and see what real blessing and riches and, and great uh, fullness looks like. You've dealt with the little stuff. Come, let me show you what I've got for you now. Uh, very exciting for both those two. Uh, the master has much more in store for them in his joy. But then we get to the third slave, the third bondservant, and the picture's a bit different, isn't it? He comes returning the one. You kind of, I have this mental picture, of it, you know, maybe wrapped up in a cloth, and he kind of gives it to him, protected and safe, but, but the master is not pleased. The third slave says he was scared. He was scared because the master's ways were unpredictable. And the master expects to see profit from nothing. You know, he gathers where he doesn't scatter. Uh, he reaps where he didn't sow. He said, Master, your ways are unpredictable. And that kind of scares me. And what I'd rather do than go out and play this high-stakes, risky game, is I'd rather just play it safe and do nothing. Uh, I just keep this safe. Nothing's, nothing's lost. You haven't lost anything. So, you know, you, you haven't gone backwards at all. But I didn't want to play that game where you cause things to come from nothing and I've got no control over that. Well, the Master's angry and he condemns the servant and condemns him in his own words, you know, you knew that I could make something out of nothing, did you? Uh, Yet, you weren't prepared to be part of it. It's interesting, isn't it? You you think that it's unreasonable of the Master at first read because The whole trip has been pretty successful for him. He went off and did whatever he did. He came back. He's pretty much doubled everything he had before he went, except for the one talent from the one slave. But you'd think he'd go, oh, well, it's not a bad day at the office. It's turned out all right. No, but of course, this is not about the money. Remember what the Master says? These are small things. These people have been faithful with small things. I'm not really interested in these small things. What he's interested in is the heart. What's going on in here with my servants? I don't care about the money. What's going on in here? And you see, what this third servant did, this third bond servant, was precisely not what he was expected to do, not what he was asked to do. What was expected of him was, he would take this talent and he would go out and he would trade with it and he would seek the master's benefit. And he didn't do it. And if you think about it like... A workplace, a boss at an office, it kind of makes sense, right? Say the boss at the office uh, comes up to one of the employees and gives them a bunch of files and said, look, I've got to go on a work trip for a month, uh, could you work through this stuff for me please and uh, I'll get it when I get back. Boss goes off, boss comes back and the worker goes, here's your files, I, I haven't done anything with them, they're exactly like you gave them to me, are you pleased? The boss says, "What? what? no, of course I'm not pleased. You haven't done anything that I asked you to do. You've returned to me the work undone, not touched. That's what the servant has done. And it reveals something of his heart, doesn't it? He's fearful. Oh, what if I get this work wrong? What if I make a spelling mistake or get some of my numbers wrong or one of the clients doesn't, whatever? He's scared. He's not taking on the tasks that he's been given. And more than that, it shows his greatest concern... Is for his own security, not getting the master's work done. His greatest concern is his own security, not getting the master's work done. And that reveals his heart. The master says, why should you work in this organisation anymore? The boss says, why should you be here when you don't care about the outcome of this business? Leave. You're sacked. You're not a worker who's part of the project of this company. He hasn't done it. He hasn't done what he was meant to do. He also doesn't trust the master. You see, the master gave to one, five talents, according to his ability. To the other, two talents, according to his ability. And to the third, one talent, according to his ability. The master had made an assessment as to who would be able to deal with what profitably. Right? It says that in the text, doesn't it? Uh, The master gave to each, according to his ability. So he gives to the five... He's made the assessment, this guy can deal with five, and what does the guy do? He deals with it, he doubles it, the master was right. He gives to this other guy two, his assessment is, this guy can deal with two, the guy takes it, he he does, he doubles it, the master was right. He gives to this guy one, what does the master know this guy could do? He knows he can double it, he's given him according to his ability, he knows that he could double it, and yet the guy says, no, 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 I'm too scared to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the outcome, this is too risky. Notice as well in verses 26 and 27 he doesn't even do the bare minimum the very bare minimum which was just stick it in the bank you could bury it in the ground and it would be safe but he stick it in the bank at least to get back 5% like well, do something for me just get the interest from having it invested he didn't even do that and that really does betray the fact that this third slave has no interest at all in the master's assets His only interest is self-preservation. Ironically, because it doesn't work out that way for him, does it? He's trying to save his own life. And he lost it. His talent might have been something that he could have used to further the Master's purposes. But he wasn't interested in that. And because of that, he is thrown out. Of the master's household, and sent away to a dark place. So this story is again what Jesus' people should do while they wait for His return. Matthew twenty-four, Jesus is coming back, and then those stories. Don't be don't be caught out. Be ready. He could come back tomorrow. Then the bridesmaid story, but it might be a long wait. And now this story. What are you going to do while you wait? The answer is increase the master's assets, build the kingdom grow what He has entrusted to you. That's your job, while you wait. Have a passionate heart for what He cares about and be invested in the things that He's invested in, be working towards His goals while you wait for Him to return. It's not just a time of faithful waiting, you see. The time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' return is not a time when Jesus says to His people, just sit on your hands and sit tight and be faithful and wait. No. It's a time when he says, get out there, build the kingdom, do my work. When I come back, I want to see it. It's a time not just of passive waiting, but of active deployment for the master's service. And that's why it's a time of strategic work, thinking strategically about how can we most build the kingdom? How can we do the best with what we've got To develop the master's assets. You see, putting it into, putting your talent, as it were, into the bank might grow the asset a little bit, but it's not super strategic. Actually, going out and and trading, using that uh, economic metaphor, uh, is the way to build it more rapidly. Be more strategic. Jesus wants his people to take what he's given them and to grow it and to find the best ways to do that most effectively. So the question is this then, what are Jesus' assets? What are Jesus' assets? How does all of this story relate to us today? Uh, Lots of us won't have $40 million worth of silver that we're sitting on, we're going, oh, that's why Jesus gave me that. No. And of course, money is not what it's about, right? As was said today during the offering, Jesus doesn't need our money. It's not like Jesus is there saying, oh, I'm really hard up, and, or I'd like some more cash in the bank. No, this is just an illustration, a metaphor. What is Jesus' asset that He wants grown? Well, all the creation belongs to Jesus, of course, just not all the creation recognizes it yet. But the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of God is, is where that rule of Jesus is recognized. And his kingdom is grown, the more people who come to recognize him as king. His asset is his kingdom. His possessions, his treasured possessions on earth, actually, though he cares for and loves the whole earth, are his people. And he wants more people. Especially people gathered together in his name, singing his praises. If we can put it this way, what the Lord Jesus would love when he returns is to have more and more and more people who gather together to sing praises to His Holy Name. And what He calls His people to do, while they're waiting, is bring those people in. Build the church. Create a greater and greater worshipping community, who live their lives for my glory. And so, that's what we need to recognise. The task that we have before us, is building the kingdom, building the church. Building it up to greater than it is, when we walked in the door. Now, remember, this is not about us winning our salvation. It's not like Jesus is going to go, you need to grow this many churches by this much if you want to be saved. No, 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 no. We're saved by Jesus' death on the cross. Our eternal security is fixed in his resurrection. We will rise like heroes. But that is the purpose of this time. And remember, we don't have to guarantee the outcome, he's the one who gathers where he doesn't scatter. He's the one who reaps where he doesn't sow. He's the one who causes things to grow, but he's looking at our hearts. Are you going to be passive about this? Or are you going to give yourself to the work that I've left you to do? So what does it look like to build the kingdom, to build the church? Well, I think it looks like two things in particular. And it's pretty simple, but pretty profound. It looks like size, and it looks like depth. Size and depth. Size is pretty straightforward. How are you going to grow the church from whatever size it is now to something greater? Evangelism. Spreading the good news. Calling people to faith in Jesus. Proclaiming Him. That can happen in lots of different ways, can't it? It could be that we invite people to our churches so they can hear the gospel preached. Bring your friends along, bring your neighbours along, bring your enemies along. Jesus says we need to love them too, to hear the good news of the gospel and God willing, by His Spirit, to repent and believe and be saved. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's offering to read the Bible with people who aren't believers, so that they can hear the Word of God as God speaks to them through the Scriptures. Maybe it's creating a different set of events. Maybe it's not coming to church, maybe it's not reading the Bible, maybe it's who knows what, something in your workplace or something in your place of study or something in your community that will bring people together to hear something of the Lord... Maybe it's starting new churches. It's kind of an amazing thing, but all all the data, all the research says that nothing brings more people to faith in the Lord Jesus than new churches. That's weird, isn't it? New churches grow by conversion at a markedly faster rate than established churches. So we need to keep growing new churches. And there's a whole lot of research and thinking behind that, but it's a kind of out there idea to start a whole new church but it seems to be a great way of doubling the Master's assets. Or maybe something else. That is, I don't really know that it has to be this thing, that thing or that thing, but it needs to be proclaiming the good news to people who don't believe. Now, I want to just say two quick things about this. Uh, There's a whole lot of reasons, I think, why many of us, myself included, are sometimes slow to proclaim the Gospel to others. Uh, One is, we don't know enough people who aren't believers. We can kind of live in a Christian little bubble, uh, which is a blessing because it's lovely to spend time with the family. But we need to get out and meet people who aren't believers and invest in their lives so that we've got people who don't know the Lord that we can introduce uh, Him to them. Uh, So, one thing we need to do is be prepared to make friends for Jesus. Make friends for Jesus. If we don't have people who, in our lives, aren't believers, we need to make friends for Jesus. But the flip side of that is, we need to be prepared to lose friends for Jesus... That is, uh, sometimes we can get into those patterns where we've got all these friends who aren't believers, but we think, oh, if I talk about Jesus, they might not be my friend anymore. Well, that's okay, Uh, we don't want to lose friends and we want people to love us and we want to love them, but we can't withhold the words of eternal life. So, in whatever it looks like in different particularities, we need to make friends for Jesus and we need to be brave enough to lose friends for Jesus, because our mission is not actually just uh, associating with people who already believe what we believe, and our mission is not keeping our friends but not offering them salvation, our mission is to grow the Master's assets. So we need to do those things. So size is the first way that we might build Jesus' kingdom, build His assets. And the second thing is depth, or maturity, or some word like that, which means Help people know more of him. The scriptures talk lots about us building each other up to become to the fullness of him who is the head. Now, sometimes you get this very unhelpful way of speaking in churches, which is kind of like, What's the bare minimum I need to know to be a Christian? You know, what's the bottom line bare minimum? I need to know these three things. I'm a Christian. I'm in the door. I get why we do that sometimes. But the scriptures don't really talk about bare minimums, they talk about what's the fullest, the richest. The, the most uh, mature understanding of the Lord we could have. We need to keep growing and keep taking in more of His Word and living out more and more of our lives for His glory. So this kind of bare minimum thinking isn't the New Testament way of thinking. But the, the greatest maximum is what we should be shooting for. So we need to help each other grow in our understanding. We need to help each other grow in our holiness. We need to help each other grow in our praise We need to help each other grow in our obedience. That means we need to help baby Christians move past a Sunday school faith. It's great to have Sunday school when you're a Sunday school age, but we need to help people grow up into more than that and understand more of the fullness of what's in the Scriptures. We need to help catchphrase Christians get deeper into systematic Bible study. It's great to have some memory verses... But do you know the story of the book from which that memory verse came? Do you know why that verse came in the context of the that part of the Bible? We need to help each other keep growing in that. We need to help confused Christians get clarity about their doctrine. We need to help people who are a bit muddled up about what the Bible teaches on certain things, to sharpen up in understanding them. We need to help Christians who live in their heads, for whom it's all ideas and thoughts and great systems of theology get out and live in the world and, and and rub shoulder to shoulder with people who don't know the Lord and take that great understanding, those great minds and share them with the people around them. We need to help self-centred Christians live sacrificially for the sake of the needy, uh, including the spiritually needy. All of this, growing the church in size, growing the church in depth, is going to require a couple of things, a few things. It's gonna require time, it's gonna require energy, and it's gonna require money. There's no getting around that. There's lots of things that just won't happen if we don't give our time to them. There's lots of things that just won't happen if we don't give our energy to them. And there's lots of things that just won't happen if we don't give our money to them. And that's okay, because that's why Jesus has given us those things. They're the talents we've been entrusted with, the gift of time He's given to us, the gift of energy, the gift of money. Christians have a very strange way of thinking about gifts. Most people think, when you get a gift, it's something for you. So, you know, it's Christmas, someone gives me a gift, I unwrap it, thank you, that's for me, that's my gift, great. That's not how it works, with the gifts God gives us. God gives us a gift, and it's a gift to bless others. It's a gift for service, a gift for building up the church, a gift for reaching out. So we receive from God, oh, this is the gift for me, great, how am I going to use this to bless? And God's given us the gift of time and money and energy so that we can use it to bless others. And to do what? To do the very thing He said we should be doing, which is building up His assets as we wait for His return. There's a lot of work to be done. I don't know if you feel that. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, that's okay, that's okay, wow. we labour under a great Master and again, He reaps where He doesn't sow, there's, there's great work to be done but there's great uh, things that we can achieve under Him. And uh, this now, if I might say, is part of where my day job comes into play. So I work at the Bible College, as you've heard, and our primary goal is to train and equip and develop people for serving in Christian ministry. Now, that might mean formal Christian ministry, like becoming pastors and certainly lots of our graduates become pastors or missionaries overseas, that sort of thing, but also training and developing and growing people so that they can work in their local church as evangelists or lead their Bible study groups or be elders in the congregation or any number of other things. Basically, we want to see people doing more to build the Master's assets and so, people who are interested in doing that, come to us, so that we can equip them and train them and help them get ready for that more. Our purpose statement is, to prepare the next generation of Gospel workers for Adelaide, South Australia and beyond. And we hope and we trust that under God, that just lines up with what we read in the Scriptures of what we're meant to be doing in this age. Uh, We do it by teaching the Bible, in some depth teaching theology, teaching ministry and uh, it's an interesting ministry to be part of because it's not a short-term ministry. Lots of ministries that people are involved in are, you know, if we do this today, we'll see the fruit tomorrow. Our fruit might not be for five years, for ten years, as someone we train up to be, say, a pastor Uh, eventually graduates five years down the track, then works as an associate pastor somewhere and then 10 years down the track, maybe they'll be a pastor of a church. But you know, that's an investment worth making because I want my kids to have good pastors in their church and I want their kids to have good pastors leading their church. And where are those people going to come from? They're going to come from the investments we make now in preparing them for the future. Uh, So This is my pitch and my plug, which I'll unashamedly say, uh, if you're interested in thinking more about getting trained up to use the gifts, the talents you've been given to serve the Lord Jesus more and more, I'd love you to think about whether you should come and take a course at a Bible college. Uh, Be interested in the spread of things we've got, I'm not going to list them through now, but have a look at the website. Uh, We exist to help you serve better. And of course, we're very grateful for any support you can give us because our ministry is funded about 30-40% on the donation of people who believe in the things we believe as we seek to see the Kingdom built up. So I think this is the passage we've seen before us is, it's a kind of challenging passage and it kind of is a bit stark, isn't it? But it makes a lot of sense. That is, it's totally consistent that Jesus has given us a task to do. Otherwise, why hasn't He come back yet? The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet isn't just so we can sort of get on with our everyday lives and just, you know, do the things that please us. And make No, the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because the assets aren't yet built. When they're built, when all the, go- the world has heard the gospel, uh, when his people are mature in the faith, Jesus will return. We don't know when that time is, we don't know how to measure it, but we know it hasn't happened yet. So there's more work to be done. And here's the great thing, I don't know how you feel about this, but... I find it unimaginably encouraging and exciting and humbling and overwhelming to consider one day turning up and seeing the Lord face to face and Him saying to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you want to hear that? It would be amazing. And so we've been told how we're to live our lives as we approach that day when we'll see him face to face and join in singing his praises forever. Can I pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you that it is good news and as we've been singing already this morning, Uh, it's, It's news that wells up joy in us and thankfulness and that funny mix of feeling so broken because of our sinfulness and our unworthiness and yet being so exalted because of your love for us that restores us and gives us great promises despite that. Thank you that we can lose ourselves in you and that our future is glorious and secure because of what's happened in the past. When Jesus died for us. Please help us, each one, uh, think about what you have entrusted to us. Our time, our money, our talents, our our intellect, our strategic thinking, whatever it is. Father, please help us to realise that what we've been given, we've been entrusted with by you, so that we might advance your focus for this age, to see your asset grown, to see the kingdom built, to see more people come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour and those of us who do continually deepened and grown and matured in the faith for his glory. Father, we do want to live for your glory so we pray you'd work these truths into our heart and we thank you that we can bring our prayers to you in the name of Jesus who is at your right hand. Amen.